I, uh, I don't know if it's a predicament or what, but I think I've kind of worked myself into an uh, uncomfortable place in parenting where uh, my children have noticed a pattern in me and maybe kind of exploit it once in a while. Uh, if you've uh, had children of your own or, or been around kids much, I think probably uh, many of you could empathize. Uh, you know, if, uh, if a kid does something a little bit out of line, one of my sons does something a little bit out of line, typically my first response is very gracious, uh, like would probably be the best way to characterize it. You know, uh, I, I don't know if they're hardened uh, in their resolve to do something wrong, or maybe it was just a moment of poor judgment and a, a gentle correction is better. Uh, but I think sometimes they kind of count on the fact that it's probably going to be a generous response the first time and maybe even just assume that that's the case. And uh, I don't know that I would do anything differently, but it certainly makes for uh, interesting dynamics sometimes when a, a child has kind of already gone into deciding uh, that they're going to pursue a certain course of behavior. Uh, you know, it kind of becomes like a, a test of who has the strongest resolve. And like when we read this text uh, this morning, I think... Uh, probably there's definitely an element of that happening uh, as kind of the second run-in between the apostles and the Sanhedrin, where uh, the apostles are certainly resolved to continue doing what they're doing. Maybe the Sanhedrin is uh, questioning just how strong the apostles' resolve is to continue in this uh, course of action. But I want to read the text this morning, and I think uh, in one way, this is kind of the end of the first part of Acts, and I think there's uh, something that's going to become evident up to this point in Acts that I'd really like to focus on this morning. So beginning in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they were carrying out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand at the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, and so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, 
They were greatly perplexed about them and wondering what would, this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. For the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care with what you are about to do with these men. For before the days of Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. And he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to, oppose, to be opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... We thank you, God, that you have proven mighty to save, God, that you have uh, adopted us as sons and daughters in Christ, and God, we pray that uh, we would uh, again see your miraculous work and uh, by your Spirit. God, that you would enlighten our hearts this morning, God, that you would give us a spirit of submission to your word, and that we would see uh, the fruit of the gospel in the lives of this church, and that uh, their example, uh, God, the example of your grace working itself out in the lives of others, would inspire us to greater faithfulness, and that it would draw us closer to you, and that we would be uh, further transformed into the likeness of Christ as we better understand what it means to be called according to Christ Jesus for your purposes. And we pray that you would do this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Now, uh, 
As I said, this is kind of a, a repeat of the first arrest in a lot of ways and kind of uh, unique in other ways, but Luke uh, opens the text by uh, giving us a bit of a summary, and in some ways the, the summary isn't really any different than the summaries that he's offered so far, right? Basically the same things are still happening, and I think one of the reasons that Luke continues to offer us these kinds of summaries is because Jerusalem is changing around the apostles, and so, uh, you know, status update not changed isn't uh, really an update if nothing has changed, but the circumstances in Jerusalem have changed significantly, and yet the apostles are still giving themselves to preaching and teaching. Uh, they are still doing miracles, uh, though Luke does weave a couple things into this update that demonstrate like the, the way that their ministry is being received by the people who are not believers in Jerusalem. And I think a great example of that is verse 13, that none of the rest dared join them. And of course, we remember that this comes right on the heels of the miracle, miraculous death of Ananias and Sapphira. And so even for the people who are not yet following Christ in Jerusalem, there is definitely a growing recognition that uh, there is some miraculous power in the apostles, and it's certainly not a power to be trifled with. And so maybe the, the mood of the crowd at this point seems to be like uh, impressed, but a little bit apprehensive about what this means, right? They're not uh, necessarily all submitting to the apostles' teaching. Not everyone's receiving Christ as Lord, but there is a recognition that uh, we don't mess around with these guys. They're, they're serious, and uh, the Lord seems very much to be behind their ministry. Uh, but uh, as all this is happening, and as people are kind of in awe of the power of the apostles, there's still this recognition that uh, even if I'm not ready yet to submit to the apostles' teaching, that benefit from the kind of power that the apostles are displaying. And so people are doing things like carrying their sick out into the streets, hoping uh, for healing. There's, there's a, a recognition that something spectacular is happening here. And uh, it's grown to the point that now not just are they known in Jerusalem, but the towns around Jerusalem are uh, hearing about what's happening and people are drawing in. I'd say in one sense, uh, verse 16 is the first hint in the book uh, that the command of Jesus uh, for the gospel to go out from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth is beginning to be fulfilled, right? This is our first indication that word about Jesus is spreading out from Jerusalem. But uh, still notice uh, that as the word goes out, uh, immediately uh, healing or cleansing or uh, the removal of unclean spirits is, is the headline that's going out, that something spectacular is going out in, uh, from Jerusalem or happening in the ministry of the apostles, yet maybe the gospel of Jesus Christ hasn't been carried beyond Jerusalem. But as this early church is growing and uh, increasing in reputation, uh, the same Pharisee or the same Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, that uh, had forbidden 
the apostles not to speak in Jesus' name are enraged. They are filled with jealousy. Luke tells us uh, that the apostles are uh, growing in reputation, that there's nothing about the apostles that should even warrant the people paying attention to them. You know, they're nobodies from nowhere, and yet uh, they're turning the hearts of the people towards themselves, and the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees, very much feel like they should be the people leading Israel. And so their response uh, to the apostles' crime of continuing to preach the name of Christ despite being forbidden from doing so is to arrest the apostles and put them in prison. There's really no uh, indication in this text if uh, when Luke says apostles, he meant the two apostles who were arrested the first time, uh, Peter and John, or if this time all of the apostles are rounded up, uh, the fact that he uses apostles generically and never names anybody seems to indicate, at least to me, that probably at this point all 12 are being arrested, not just Peter and John, but uh, some or all of the apostles are arrested and put into prison, but almost immediately uh, God, uh, for the first of many times in Acts, uh, miraculously intervenes and the prison doors are opened. They're brought out, and the angel that saves them, the angel of the Lord, instructs them to continue doing exactly what they've been doing. Go back to the apostle, or go back to the temple, excuse me, and continue to preach the gospel. And so the apostles uh, respond with, of course, obedience. They step out of prison, they immediately go to the temple and they begin doing what they've been doing. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, the next day, the Sanhedrin shows back up. These 71 rulers show back up, ready to call them out of prison and to court. They all take their seats, and uh, they're ready now for the apostles to come back to prison, and so they send for them. But as they send for them, uh, the officials of the Sanhedrin quickly realize that they're actually not in prison, that, that miraculously somehow they escaped. The guards are unaware that they escaped. Like, uh, you would think that for these people who claim to be servants of God, they, they would maybe begin to recognize, along with every other bit of evidence, uh, that maybe God has some hand in this, yet uh, that thought doesn't occur to them, apparently. Uh, they are angry. Uh, but uh, as it's reported back, uh, someone comes and says, hey, the guys who we're looking for were in jail are actually back in the temple precinct teaching, you know, the thing that you told them not to do, the thing that we just arrested them for. They're back doing that very thing. And so, uh, they go back to arrest them, but recognizing the situation in Jerusalem for what it is, that the people maybe are a little bit apprehensive about what uh, it means to be a follower of Jesus, but recognizing that the hand of God is upon them, uh, knowing the mood of the crowd, the, the, uh, the guards uh, of the temple, you know, kind of like lightly lead them back to the Sanhedrin. They don't want to do anything to upset the crowd, and I, I again think it's, I mean, it's somewhat ironic that the crowd, like, is a, a tool that cuts both ways against the Sanhedrin. You know, they used it, uh, 
used the crowds uh, so significantly at the end of Luke to ensure uh, the death of Jesus, and now the crowd is the thing that seems God, God is using to uh, restrain the hand of the Sanhedrin from acting as it would like to. Um, but uh, they bring them back, and they, they come before the council, and the council again states the charge maybe more strongly this time. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. They can't even bring themselves to say it. They don't say, teach in the name of Jesus. Don't teach in this name. Yet, everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. You're obviously not obeying our instruction. And not only are you not obeying our instruction, but you keep implying that we had something to do with Jesus' death. Which, of course, they did, but they don't want that to be said over and over publicly. And so they come at the apostles hard. And, you know, whether it's uh, two of them or 12 of them, I think it's probably the, the same sort of situation we're talking about. They're, they're standing in the Sanhedrin with 71 guys arrayed around them in a semicircle. And certainly those 71 guys have the power of life or death. You know, this would be uh, perhaps a terrifying situation for most people, especially, I'm assuming, their emotion is very much written on their face, that they aren't uh, a little bit amused about what's happening, but they're furious about what the apostles have done. I have the worst luck, Corey. Uh, so, uh, Peter responds again. We must obey God rather than men. And this is the last time we're going to see this kind of response from the apostles for a little bit. We're going to see it several times later in Acts. But I think uh, it's at this point that I would say you're definitely beginning to see a pattern that I suggested to you was very clear in Acts a couple weeks ago. That uh, though the New Testament generally always exhorts people towards submission to government. And Paul very explicitly says that government is absolutely ordained by God to restrain the evil of men, right? That uh, there is a, a proper police function of government where God intends government to restrain the evil of people. Yet in Acts, we always see any time a government, a, a duly appointed uh, proper God-ordained government tried to restrict the people of God from doing something that God clearly commands them to do, that those people always gently but firmly resist. They respectfully insist that they're going to obey God, and that's exactly what we see from Peter here. Uh, without anger, without malice, uh, very respectfully, Peter says, no, no, like, I, I'm sorry if you're putting me in the position that I have to choose between obeying you and obeying God, then I am going to obey God. Peter, I don't think we could say, especially given what he says later in his epistles, uh, takes his disobedience to the government lightly, but when he's put in a situation where he clearly has to choose between Obedience to the direct command of God and submission to governing authorities, Peter knows exactly what he's going to do. 
And he respectfully communicates that here. I'm sorry, I have to obey God. And then he goes on, you know, uh, if, if defying them weren't uh, probably frustrating enough for the Sanhedrin, he goes on to take this opportunity to preach the gospel to them again, uh, which uh, is remarkable to me. Uh, he, he, in a nutshell, says what he's already said to them before, uh, you know, that Jesus isn't some aberration. Uh, Jesus isn't an upstart. Jesus isn't a nobody. Jesus is the promise of the God of our fathers. You know, Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic promise of our people, that the God of our fathers raised Jesus, and you killed him. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, or some translations say prince and savior, that he rules over all and he is the salvation for our people. He is the one to give repentance to Israel and to forgive sins. And not only that, but we've seen so much in these past few weeks that are clearly the hand of God. People healed, uh, people killed, unclean spirits removed, that clearly the Spirit of God is at work. And how can you deny that this is God moving? Uh, we have to obey Him. And, and, you know, at this point, I think the Sanhedrin's in a place where uh, he, he made an argument relatively succinctly, but there is enough like indisputable fact in an argument that is stated fairly respectfully. I mean, he did accuse them of murdering Jesus, but that's also fact. He knows it, they know it, that you would think if there was any desire in their heart to really consider could this be the Messiah that God has promised? Like at this point, they would have to reckon with what is happening and is this maybe something we thought it wasn't a few weeks ago. But uh, that, that isn't part of their response. And I think it, it's worth noting again that like at, at 30, like from when you look at 29 through 32, uh, it's easy for me to read through Acts and think about, uh, like, to think about the miraculous signs, you know, the miracles as being, like, uh, overwhelming evidence of the Spirit's ministry. And even the apostles do allude to it as evidence of the Spirit's ministry. But, uh, like, when I read through Acts and think like I don't I don't like that that it would be amazing for me to see uh, someone who is uh, crippled from birth healed or something along those lines like that would be I, I feel like strengthening uh, my faith but at the same time I think uh, that that you see something in Acts that is probably equally miraculous, and we see something that is equally miraculous all the time, and we kind of overlook it because it, it doesn't so much feel supernatural to us. And by that I mean, uh, you know, Peter is a guy 
who just weeks earlier, when confronted by people with virtually no authority whatsoever, denied Jesus three times. Right? Like, he was so terrified of being identified as a follower of Jesus that he denies Jesus three times. Like, weeks before this is happening. And now, these weeks later, like, only because of the Spirit of God, he is standing in front of the Sanhedrin for a second time, having been graciously warned once to stop doing what he's doing, and again insisting, no, I am going to obey God, and not only that, I'm going to call you to repentance as well. That is absolutely the working of God's Spirit to transform a person's life. And, uh, you know, you, like me, may or may not have seen a lame person healed, but I know, like, looking back over life, that I've absolutely seen that sort of spirit working over and over again, where someone uh, seemed uh, to be absolutely a son of perdition, and then God intervenes, and their life is radically transformed. And so, you know, at this point, I would suggest that all of us uh, should be careful as we're reading through the book of Acts uh, not to think, like, man, it'd be really cool to see the Spirit working the way they saw the Spirit working. I think they would probably point to miracles as absolute validation of the Spirit's working, but those miracles were maybe more to the people outside the church than inside the church. If you were to ask people inside the church at this point, like, what are some evidences of the Spirit's working? I think probably they would point to the testimony of one another as one of the most clear examples of the Spirit's working, right? They'd say, you should have met Peter 10 weeks ago. Dude was a nightmare. Like, he was so tough to be around. And like, now, like, look at him. Like, God has radically transformed him. And we see that kind of Spirit's working, or that sort of working of the Spirit if we just look for it. But going on, uh, they don't begin to question themselves. They become immediately enraged and want to kill the apostles. And uh, the only thing that stops them is a Pharisee in the council, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is uh, the inheritor of Hillel. Hillel is probably one of the most famous rabbis of all time. Gamaliel was like his chief student. Uh, And Gamaliel is introduced to us and is uh, a Pharisee. Uh, And so you remember, if if you remember the the nerd moment a few weeks ago, the Sanhedrin, this court that they're standing in front of, is primarily Sadducees. Sadducees generally hate Pharisees, but Pharisees are more, and Sadducees have most of the political power, but Pharisees typically have more of the affection of the people, so there's kind of this balance, uncomfortable balance between Pharisees and Sadducees where they can't really do without each other. And one of the Pharisees stands up uh, and kind of speaks in the apostles' defense, or at least encourages them to a bit of uh, fatalism. Uh, he's uh, introduced to us as particularly being held in honor And he decides what needs to be said next should not be said in the presence of the apostles. So they're escorted out. And he addresses the Sanhedrin. And uh, it could be 
that as he's giving this address, that he genuinely feels these things. It, I think, could also be that uh, he sees the apostles continuing doing what they're doing as kind of a way to uh, weaken the, Sad the Sadducean party. And it's not really clear what's motivating Gamaliel yet. He's uh, not a believer. In fact, uh, one of his chief disciples, a guy who will be introduced to us shortly as Saul, uh, ends up very violently persecuting the church. But at this point, uh, Gamaliel uh, wants things to kind of remain status quo, and so he delivers the speech reminding them of examples uh, from you know, 30 years earlier about people who had uh, raised up uh, either claiming to be a messiah or claiming that they could overthrow uh, Roman rule. And both times, once the leader was killed, pretty quickly the movement kind of fizzled out. And, uh, you know, the implication is, look, we've already killed Jesus. Just give this a few more weeks and these guys will all disappear back to Galilee and things will be over. <clears throat> and he kind of concludes his speech with a, a, I don't know, a sort of fatalistic statement like, well, you know, if it's God, then we can't stop it. And if it's not God, it's going to go away. So we shouldn't spend a bunch of time worrying about this, and certainly we don't want to end up opposing God. And of course, the irony here is they are already very much opposing God by trying to restrain the apostles from preaching the gospel, but none of them seem to understand that. And so the Sanhedrin takes his advice, uh, and they call in the apostles, and then they scourge them. They, uh, this is 39 lashes, right? So, uh, a leather whip, probably three uh, tassels of calf hide, and typically uh, they would do two on the back, one on the chest, until you'd had 39, and then you were sent out. Uh, so they, they beat them, again, maybe Peter and John, maybe all 12, but they charged them not, again, not to speak in Jesus' name and let them go. And the apostles' response uh, is on leaving the council is rejoicing. They're happy. And they're not happy to be let go, though maybe some part of them is happy to be out of the Sanhedrin. But uh, Luke says that specifically they were happy to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, of course, the name of Jesus. Like that they understand that their suffering the way Christ suffered is not <coughs> evidence of God's displeasure but it's a badge of honor. They're rejoicing that they get to suffer the way that Jesus suffers, and more broadly, uh, they continue to minister in Jesus' name. They, they are not at all deterred from their ministry. Uh, they are rejoicing at their suffering and continue doing exactly what they do. And like as you walk through this text, I would suggest to you that I, I think... Everything about the, there are times that apostles do things that will say, eh, uh, but everything about the apostles' behavior in this text is absolutely worthy of our imitation, right? They're like, join in imitating me as I imitate Christ. This is a perfect example of that. Like, they do what we would only hope to do in these circumstances, and I think, 
Every bit of worldly wisdom uh, would have been say as little as possible in front of the Sanhedrin, like uh, get out of there as quickly as you can. Maybe like the best, you know, like we're we're good at rationalizing. Uh, so you know, like we like well, let's just lay low for a few weeks. Like the best thing long term for ministry is not that I get killed. So like. I'll just lay low for a few weeks and that'll give me more ministry in the long run, right? Uh, like, we, we could very easily rationalize how they would do something other than what they do. And uh, their love for Christ, their zeal for the proclamation of the gospel does not allow them to do it. Like, I don't... I'm sure that these guys could have very easily rationalized their way to like being uh, less than vocal about their love for Christ or their intention to continue proclaiming the gospel, yet they do it. And, and even if, uh, even if they, you know, know their commitment to continue preaching the gospel, I mean, I would do the exact same thing in their situation. And I think most people would probably understand if they had kind of written off the Sanhedrin as people who have already hardened their hearts to Christ, maybe a little bit beyond the grace of God, like, uh, you know, I can, I can be clear to, uh, I can be clear to them that I'm going to continue to proclaim Christ, but they're not worth my effort. Like, I'm not going to proclaim Christ to them. All that's going to do is bring more persecution on me, and again, rationalize your way to like, you know, if I'm raising their ire, then ultimately that's going to deter my ability to minister to others. Like, you know, everything about this whole situation, I think it's so easy to rationalize in a way that would make sense to anyone how they don't respond the way that they respond. And even... Even the, like their response to the whipping, uh, you know, like most of us would say, like, if somebody responded to those circumstances uh, by not complaining, like that's a pretty remarkable response. And not only do they not complain, but they're rejoicing about it. And like everything about their response seems like kind of otherworldly to me, like not, not normal human response to that sort of situation. And it's at that point, like, that I would suggest to you that you, you start, I think, to see something in Acts where maybe there are some parts of the apostles that are very much a part of my heart, very much a part of your heart, and there are other parts of the apostles' like mindset that maybe aren't so much a part of us. If, like, if we think that their reaction is strange, foreign, unexpected. Uh, I think, like, certainly it could be that uh, they love Christ in a way I don't, or in a way that you don't. Like, they, I, I am feigning at love for Christ, and they have genuine love for Christ. That's a possible explanation, but everything about my experience tells me, that, like, I'm not feigning love for Christ. I wish I had more love for Christ than I do, but the love I have for Christ is genuine. 
It's real. And I suspect probably that most of you would say the exact same thing, that I'm not feigning love for Christ. I have genuine love for Christ in the way that they had genuine love for Christ, yet their response in their situation seems to me, in all honesty, to be a lot different than my response in their situation would have been. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and uh, I think like the pattern that develops and acts and the way that they're responding uh, to these situations seems to indicate to me that probably they have something that I don't, maybe you don't, that uh, isn't love for Christ. Right? That I think at, it's at this point where they're doing what they're doing in response to the Sanhedrin, that they're rejoicing at their suffering, that they persist in preaching the gospel, that I, I have to recognize that uh, my perspective is different than theirs, perhaps your perspective is different than theirs, in that... Uh, they have a sort of eternal perspective that I typically don't have, right? Like, they have a kind of heavenly hope that doesn't characterize my thinking as much as it should, right? The only way that a person could uh, interpret their experience the way they're interpreting their experience is if they've zoomed way out and they're saying, you know, at the end of time... <laughs> the absolute best thing for me is that I could have suffered in the way that Christ suffered. Like, in, uh, in the end of time, the absolute best thing for me is I love my enemies to, the point, to a point that seems ridiculous to everybody else on earth, right? Like, that their perspective is absolutely eternal, and I think that I, I think that we probably get locked into a sort of thinking sometimes where we're not not thinking about the future, but our future thinking is much smaller than theirs, right? Like, I catch myself thinking all the time, well, I don't really hope for the weekend probably in the way that you hope for the weekend because the weekend's a little busier for me typically, but a lot of us hope for the weekend or hope for vacation or hope in a potential friendship or hope in like financial security or hope for retirement like we we hope for something in the future but our hope isn't the future of eternity our hope is something on this side of Christ's return and like i think uh we can labor with a genuine love for Christ and then interpret hardships as setbacks if our, our thinking is focused maybe on the future but not on eternity because every hardship is probably a step away from the goal that we'd kind of locked in on. The friendship, the retirement, the financial security, whatever it is. That... that what we're seeing in the apostles, I think, at this point, like in the first part of Acts, is men, a church, that clearly loves Christ, but more than just loves Christ, they're interpreting everything about their experience through the lens of eternity. And to the degree that we look at the church in this first portion of Acts and think, like, man, that's, that's crazy. 
Like, I don't know that I'd do the same thing. I, I think that we should be aware that a lack of love for Christ could be an explanation, but it's certainly not the only explanation. That a love for Christ that's decoupled from an eternal perspective could absolutely produce the same kind of disbelief about what we're reading here. And so my, my encouragement absolutely to all of us is that we strive always to see everything through an eternal perspective, that we evaluate everything that we're doing, everything that we're facing in an eternal perspective, that absolutely our hope of heaven governs everything about the way we think and act. And I, I think that if that's the case, uh, what's happening in the first part of Acts won't seem nearly as remarkable to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your grace in Christ. God, I repent of the ways in which uh, I fall short ways I sin against you. God, I, I think that I, I pray for everyone here, God, that we, uh, we need more of your grace. God, we recognize that it's only through you that uh, we can be whole. It's only through you that we can achieve anything of lasting value. And God, I pray God, that uh, that heavenly perspective would inundate us. God, that we would be driven uh, people. God, not just driven by a love for Christ, but God, driven by the kind of wisdom that uh, reveals that what we often spend our time chasing will be a mist in eternity. God, give us the wisdom to chase after things that will matter in eternity, and God, by your grace, make our work effective for your glory and your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.